Exposing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Cherry Cherry is a recruiting officer with the Charleston, South Carolina Police Department, an NIJ lead scholar and an IACP 40 under 40 up-and-coming leader in policing. Working with academic colleagues, she has taken a more evidence-based approach to her work and we discuss solutions to the current crisis facing police recruitment and retention. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe and this is the Reducing Crime podcast, now in its sixth year. Quick side note before we get into this month's episode. Earlier this summer, I was fortunate enough to be able to present the Jerry Lee Lecture at the annual Stockholm Criminology Symposium. I discussed how criminologists can better work with police on research and experiments. And if you're interested, the video is now available. Put your Googling skills to use. You should find it pretty easily. Or look for my blog post at jratcliffe.net. Okay, to this month's guest. Terry Cherry has 11 years with the Charleston, South Carolina Police Department and has served in patrol, investigations and problem solving. She now works in their recruiting team. Along with her colleagues in the police department and collaborators in academia, she has attracted significant interest by taking a more evidence-based approach to recruiting. Terry has been published in the academic journal Police Practice and Research, Police Chief Magazine, and she featured in a recent article in The Atlantic. I'll provide a link to that article at reducingcrime.com podcast. She is a National Institute of Justice lead scholar, was a 2020 IACP 40 Under 40 up-and-coming leader, and was awarded the 2021 Ina May Tiny Miller Award from NORLI, that is the National Association of Women Law Enforcement Executives. We chatted earlier this year at the annual meeting of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing on the campus of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. We sat outside to get away from the noise of the conference, but ended up near some tree pruning and air conditioning units. So as usual with this podcast, there's a hint of background noise. Actually, I don't think you can escape noisy air conditioning units in Vegas. Who looked around at a flat, unforgiving desert and thought, you know, let's build a city here? Oh, and one last note before we finally get to the episode. Terry discusses how important her chief, Luther Reynolds, was in giving her the space to do research, to try different approaches, and to innovate in the recruitment role. Sadly, Less than a week after we recorded this episode, Luther died from cancer at the age of just 56. I last spoke to Luther in the summer of 2021, putting the world to rights over lunch with Seth Stoughton and Jeff Alpert. Luther's commitment to advancing the field, to creating a policing world that was better than when he started, and to leaving a legacy on the profession was evident. And in that, he succeeded in spades. The policing profession is a little worse off for his passing. It'd be nice. Be smart and interesting so that it gets through your review process. Well, you're the one that has to be the smart and oh, interesting. You'll scrap it if I'm not interested. Yeah, if the podcast rests on me being smart and interesting, <laughs> we're really screwed, mate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll try my I'll try my best. Well, given that we're post karaoke from last night, I'm just impressed the hell that you can even talk today. Because how many songs did you do last night? Oh, I don't know. Three, four, oh, and the rest. You kick the party. Well, everyone off. used me as like their binky blanket, and they refused to go up unless I was helping. So I'm like, all right, I don't care. I'll go up there. I'm gonna blast. Did I hear somewhere that when you were in college you studied theater, film, and television? Okay, so that was your natural environment yeah, on the exactly. stage. I had to audition it? to get. I had to audition to get into UCLA. So how on earth did you go from theater to 
being in the job? Um, I wish it was something I could say, you know, like, boom, it happened. But I wanted to be famous, I thought, when I was 18. And so I put in for UCLA, you had to get in the school. And then I also went to New York and auditioned. For and we should say UCLA is the University of California in Los Angeles. Angeles. Yeah. yeah. Did you grow up there, by the way? No, I grew up in Boone, North Carolina, in the Appalachian Mountains. My mom and dad are professors from App State. So you're a mountain girl and you headed over to go to college in, in California. In California, I did. And they took 30, I think 32 out of 3,000 something applicants for the program. And, and you got it. And I got it. And I really enjoyed it. And then I went to Australia for a year at the creative arts department. And then I finished out, rounded it out. I was in Italy for half a year in Siena and finished out my college degree. And then I got into this sort of entrepreneurial company, did that for a while. And then the economy changed. And I had gotten an MBA by that time and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And policing had always been so something I was interested in. So you had a theater and arts background and then you picked up an MBA, because that makes complete sense. But yeah, I yeah. did, you know, I got, and I got the MBA in a, in a quantitative subject. Were your parents staring at you going, what the fuck is she doing? No, they just, they're pretty used to me just, flying by my seat of my pants with my own journey. <laughs> um, at the time, after that, my brother had been working for Capitol Police. He went to GW, George Washington University, and had studied religion and criminal justice, which is hilarious to me, and had gotten the job. And so he'd been working in policing for a while, and I thought, oh, well, that seems really stable and interesting and fun and dynamic, and I get to deal with people, and I could use my MBA. I always saw policing as equal to the federal government. Everyone always talks about wanting to be in the FBI and things, but right. I saw policing as the same, just at a local level to me. So I started applying and Charleston took me first. And it was, I'm so glad, the universe was so kind to me because I'm near my parents who retired in Charleston. I'm an hour flight to my brother. Um, and I love my city and I love the people in my city, good, bad and ugly. And I love my department. How long have you been there now? 11 years in Charleston, 11 years with Charleston Police Department. So you spent some time initially on patrol, I'm assuming everybody does, right? I did, yes. I spent many years of patrol on James and John's Island. It's rural and urban. So I did a lot of collaborative work with Charleston County, which is the Sheriff's Department there, which was nice because then I got to see how other departments worked. And then I had an idea to start a community-based program. Ended up being called the Problem Solving Initiative and first not everyone was on board my lieutenant allowed it to happen he said you created it figure out what you want to do you set the schedule you figure out the measurements how to measure it and then you can have one other officer so one of my best friends at the time ended up saying you would do it um, and we just ran around figuring out how to build community partnerships and then also we used the information that we had with the community to build intel on gang activity crime that was occurring, trying to find alternatives to certain issues, particularly with juveniles. Um, and we spent a lot of time with undocumented Spanish speakers. And we'd have people come and learn about traffic stops and the difference between immigration or ICE and us. Um, and it started very small. It started to grow and grow and grow. Right. Yeah. And those relationships are really important to me. I still know people. I still know the kids and I still have people from the community come and, and speak, and it was mostly the African-American and, and Latino community. Have you ran into some resistance? I did. Who would object to that is the part I'm kind of interested in. Um, Do people still feeling like it's old school policing, you go out and patrol and that's it, it doesn't matter whether you turn left or right when you're driving out the yard, just answer the radio? I think, I think it's easy to follow a system that's there, and I think people that come in and become disruptors 
and outliers are threatening. You, a disruptor, <laughs> say it's not uh, so. Yes, well, <laughs> I, accepted my, I accepted my fate early on in my career. What really happened is, is that I just didn't fit in the box. And I tried really, really hard in patrol for a long time. And I didn't understand how all the pieces work together. When you start in patrol, you go through PTO phase or FTO phase. Field training where you go out with a notionally more experienced officer. Correct. And they tell you how to do it. Well, I wanted to but, understand. But they also the... kind of try and squeeze you to kind of fit in, don't Correct. they? Correct. Yeah. They teach you a, a way to be. This is how we are. This is our culture. This yes. is how we do things. Yes. And you will fit into this box. Right. And the problem with that is, is that I wanted to understand how all the pieces work together and no one could tell me all of the pieces. Then I became very annoying, much like the rabbit in uh, Zootopia. I mean, I am Officer Hops. I want to know why. I still do. 11 years later. Yeah, because I mean, you're basically a little gay woman with a <laughs> haircut that hasn't decided what's going on with it, and a theatre background, and an MBA, you're kind of this whole smorgasbord of everything, yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah, I'm small, I'm gay, I have a very cool haircut, it's called an undercut, which also they didn't like. <laughs> right. <laughs> or my tattoos, or, you know. Yeah. I used to wear a, like a Buddhism bracelet and when I was on patrol, and they didn't like that too much either, but. I learned. I'm sure you just confused the hell out of them, didn't you? I did. Yeah. I didn't fit in. At the time, it was hard, but. Of course. I thought, well, why don't we try something different? And if I can't fit in your box, because I'm a circle, and a much bigger circle than this tiny box, let's try something new. The regime changed, you know, things but, change. But that's also, policing is changing. Yes. I mean, I joined the job in 1984. So I'm coming up to nearly 40 years involved in policing in some fashion. And the core of the job. Right, it's changed. You're still dealing with some people who are assholes to other people. Yes. You're still dealing with a lot of people who do stupid stuff and have really bad days. But, the no, but how we as a society deal with it and how we as, as an organization or policing as an organization is different as well. It has to change and evolve. But, so you were probably a pioneer in terms of bringing in a change which now or in a few years time would just be like, oh yeah, no bother. Yes, but the, the early adapters are the hardest. Yes. They get hit the hardest because they're early adapting. Yes. You know, policing's really good at late adoption, meaning someone does it before them. Yeah. They get, you know, obliterated. Yeah. And then people will go, oh, maybe that was not such a bad idea. And then an agency will do it. And other agencies like, well, this agency's doing it, so let's do it. And then, that, then they're like, well, multiple agencies are doing it. It becomes, it starts to catch on fire and sort of spread. And you know, we always recognize the people who were the first at something, but a lot of the time just forget how fucking miserable it was for them at times. It's hard. Although, you know, I think there's a space in policing for those that can come in and have new ideas and, and or be fixers. Or I think that's actually part of policing. They're just less than 1% of the total policing industry. Right. And they tend to get pushed out early on. I think that's why you don't see them a lot as you infiltrate the entire system. You know, oftentimes they go, you know what? I don't fit in, this isn't working, they don't like these ideas, and right. they give up. Part of success of being innovative is sticking with it. Yes, great way of looking at it. You know. And I really enjoyed patrol when I started because every different call was a problem. Mm -hmm. And I actually really ended up enjoying dealing with people with mental illness because I realized the slower you moved, and the more you realize that A didn't go to B, didn't go to C, and that, and that their sort of firings went maybe A to C to F, back to D, back to, and you had the ability to follow the story, 
and be compassionate while doing it, a lot of the times you could end up with good outcomes. People with brain injuries were different because sure. their, their thinking processes yeah, yeah. weren't it's, the same. It doesn't follow the same kind of patterns that we expect, yeah. But I enjoyed helping to the best of my ability and I enjoy talking to people and meeting new people and people's stories are what interests me. So speaking of people with mental illnesses whose brains are going in all sorts of weird directions, you've become a lead scholar for the National <laughs> Institute of Justice. Yes, and that's a really good analogy. <laughs> So we should tell people the National Institute of Justice has a program that pairs academics who work in policing with people like yourselves, practitioners who work. And it leads to, do you know what LEAD stands for? It's Law Enforcement Advancement of Data, I think is what something it is. Something like that. That's right. Law Enforcement Advancing Data and Science Scholars Program. Oh, I forgot the last half of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm the last half. When did you join that? So I got it during COVID, sort of the cusp of the Trump administration to the Biden administration. COVID, George Floyd time. I mean, it's just been such a great time in policing, hasn't it? <laughs> I, honestly, I got it. And I didn't, I was really excited. Um, it was right around the same time I got IACP's 40 Under 40, and they mailed me my award. And my wife and I stood in the hallway and celebrated it and put it in the office. L let me go back. So I had built a partnership with Kyle McLean from Clemson. He had been in Florida. It's Clemson University. Clemson University, yeah. yes, in South Carolina and Jeff Alpert at USC, which is University of South Carolina. And he's, he's a regular name that crops up on this podcast. All the time, Alpert, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh -huh, he's yeah. my buddy now. Yeah, there's uh, got to be warrants out from at least three states now. <laughs> if not, there should be. Yeah, he's great though. He and Kyle are, are fantastic because I think they really mentor practitioners and academics, whoever's interested in, in that subject matter. Kyle McLean is one of a small group of up and coming scholars who actually care about advancing policing. Yes. And don't bring any judgment to it. Yes. Which is really helpful. Yes. What's interesting that I've gotten from this experience is that I now have practitioner mentors, but I now have academic mentors too. Mm -hmm. People that truly care about my career, my success, my decisions, what's best for me. Jeremy Wilson from Michigan State's another. And it's nice to have those relationships outside of policing as well. As a police officer, you're now also publishing academically which is a fantastic way for stuff to disappear and never be seen again, right? <laughs> Correct. We've got this really good idea. What should we do about it? Let's write a really long multi-page journal article that's incredibly tedious to read and see if we can get any police officers to read it. The difference though is, is you can't build a segue between practitioners and academics if you don't have the mediator. And it has to be a person doing both, I think. Well, academia comes with some scientific rigor to actually tell you whether it really is making a difference yes. or not, as opposed to, I have thoughts and an opinion. Yeah. And it also brings some credibility to it, some external credibility. The downside is that the two fields are so far apart that it needs people like you from policing to move towards the academic side, and good scholars, not enough of them do this, to move towards and understand the policing world. I agree. In the past, long, long ago, Renaissance, let's say, you know, they used to, you have people that were artists, Donatello, Michelangelo just come to mind, who were artists and scientists and academics, and they would take their knowledge and their ability and they would translate it into something of practice. Same way now, currently in medicine, my wife is in medicine, and they study cancer, and then they try to find treatments, and then they implement those treatments. Yes. And it makes sense. Yes. Because that's the point of gathering information through scientific rigor, is to take those scientific findings and apply them. Common sense to me. Tell me about the scientific approach that you've been using in terms of thinking about recruitment, because this is very timely to be talking with you. We're in a national crisis 
around recruitment and retention. So how have you been, I mean, you've got a quantitative background, you've got an MBA, you're working in recruitment. How have you been applying that to understanding your position? Road to strategic plan first, treating recruitment like a business, constantly competing, understanding the, the landscape and the competition, not only public, but private sector. Then systematizing the recruitment, hiring, onboarding, and then sort of the back end of the exiting of the entire process. Oh, so, so you've, been, you've been sort of disaggregating the process to say, okay, let's treat each of these parts of it and look to see where... We can make improvements. Right. You know, we have a database that captures information about the people that apply, where they're from. They do this in private sector to do target marketing, for example. So we know where our applicants come from. We know their race. We know their gender. We have a survey system when they onboard to find out why they picked us over another department, what it was about us that attracted them, meaning Charleston Police Department. Yep. Then they end up transferring to training. And then Sergeant Gibson, who's also a lead scholar that I work with, he's implemented a stay survey, best way to put it. And then we capture exit interview data. And then to, I'm creating a survey to try to capture no-show and unresponsive data right. to see if I get those people to respond so that we can do a thematic analysis to try to understand why it is that they apply and put in an application, but then it doesn't translate to actual testing. So you're trying to really understand the whole process from the moment when somebody walks up to you at a recruiting station at a table, and then if they give you their details at that point, how can you smooth the path of getting them in, getting them through, and getting them to stay? Correct. I'm going to correct you just a little bit because they have to apply in order for the data aspect to start. Right. Okay. Attracting people has unfortunately a lot more to do with charisma and personality. If only you had any of that. <laughs> it has to do with customer service. It does. You can probably measure that, but it's just a lot more qualitative. It's harder to explain than it is to say, if you move expeditiously in a hiring process, you're going to be more competitive or these, these we can do target marketing. I mean, those things are very easily quantifiable and measurable, but charisma kindness, love, understanding people, it's, it's very challenging to, to capture that and, and then franchise it. So people can go through a process that can be incredibly efficient, but very impersonal. Yes. But they stay because they've built a connection, say with you or something like that. Okay. And so that puts extra work on you outside of your normal hours to sort of follow them through the process and keep them on board and keep them in tune. But that's recruiting. So the way they've been doing recruiting, as I always use this analogy, but if I go and I say, I want to catch four tuna, and the tuna are good police officers. I want to catch four. And I throw out a net. Charleston has a lot of fishing, so this is why I always think of okay, this. Okay, yeah, I know nothing as about a, fishing, yeah. So, well, I don't mind eating fish, but so, I have no idea how to catch the So bastards. oftentimes you'll throw out a net to catch minnows to use the minnows to catch fish, okay? Okay. But agencies, they will throw out a, a casting net and they'll catch thousands of minnows and they'll pull out the huge net of the minnows and they'll stand on a stage for the news and say, look how successful we are. And then those minnows, in my analogy, represent applicants. Well, that means nothing. You know nothing about them. You just have caught some minnows. While over here, you have somebody who is diligently trying to fish in the spot where they know that they are using the correct bait, having studied the wave patterns, have studied the weather, the day, everything. Have, have really thought about it. And they've caught not four, but only two, but they caught two tuna. Two tuna is going to be worth more than a thousand minnows. I mean, we could go off on a tangent and talk about the fact we haven't even defined or measured what effective policing is. Right. 
No one can tell me. You know, I think if we do this right, we're recruiting police officers who are going to be around in 10 or 20 years' time. I have no idea what policing is going to look like in 20 years' time, and I don't trust anybody who says they know. It won't look like this. No. Policing is just like everything else. It's impermanent and organic, and it's ever-flowing and ever-changing, and it should be. Nothing should be permanent. You've got 11 years in, and you've been recruiting for the last five years. So you were recruiting before George Floyd and post-George Floyd. I was. Did things change? No. Really? No. What changed is that agencies became so focused on the negative that they forgot about caring. They all shut down during COVID, stopped recruiting. I didn't. They stopped testing. I didn't. I had to get very creative on how to do it. Right. They started throwing their hands up in the air saying, well, everyone hates us. No one wants to be a police officer. I give up. Yeah. And when you do that, it's unattractive and it doesn't inspire people. Recruiting and retaining is about inspiring people to do something for someone other than themselves and to see the value in that. The, the way you get people to do it is you meet them, you talk to them, you get to know about their families, you care about them, they're human beings, they're not, they're not personnel numbers. It's not how the world works. After, after being married for 20 years, I got divorced. And one of the things I learned getting back in the dating market is don't talk about your ex-wife. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's, yeah. Let's focus on the positive and moving forward and not dwell on all the things it, that are going wrong. That's a good Probably example. Probably the worst analogy ever. No, Apologies but, to my ex-wife. But, but pain hurts. And that's why we talk about it is because we are human beings. Even chiefs are human beings. Command staff are human beings. <laughs> Some people would say otherwise, but it's true. Everybody has stories and has pains and has things that have happened to them. I think those stories travel with you and you can't get rid of them. No. And I think people in policing, especially if you've seen 10, 15, 20 years, where the job was easier and then George Floyd comes along and it has this international impact to change policing in other countries as well. But that wasn't even the first, that's what I don't understand. I mean, this has been going on forever. There was Rodney King, there was Walter Scott. I haven't policed in an age where there wasn't Ferguson. Pretty much been that's your my whole life. career, yeah. And the people that you're recruiting, they don't know a world without body cameras. They don't know a world without reform. They don't know a world without citizen input. Those things aren't necessarily adverse to policing. It was easier because you got to willy-nilly run around and do what you wanted. Yeah, you don't remember before, but when body-worn cameras came in, a lot of people hated the idea of body-worn cameras. And it reminded me of conversations going way back to reading about policing when the Miranda warning came in in the 1960s. But we adapted, it became normal, and everybody's fine with it. And people, are, I think, are really pro-body-worn cameras. So it, I think there's a reticence and a fear of change. So yeah, the post-George Floyd world has been different. But it's interesting that if you take the right approach to recruitment, you haven't had as many impacts as other places where it's just, it, you know, recruitment is really a struggle right now. It, yes, but if you have an archaic system that refuses to change and refuses to, you know, we, we talk about organizational justice, you, you don't listen, then they're going to go. So do you think the change is more because society shifted and the candidates have changed? The 20-something-year-olds are not like the 20-something-year-olds of 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, but I mean, no 20-year-old is like any other 20-year-old from previous ages. I mean, that's the nature of the progression of life. I mean, you, you just have to be comfortable adapting. That's so the solution, is adapt. So police departments can't just now set up a, a, a table at a university career fair, grab a few names, get a few applicants, and just keep rolling on as business as usual. They've got to change. So every department is its own entity. We should probably say that first. I use the example that Blockbuster refused to adapt. Blockbuster was a company, for those that don't know, that would rent movies. And it had an opportunity to go to streaming, and it said no, because it thought it was too big to fail. 
Yeah. And streaming came along, Netflix came along. Netflix has now gotten very big and thought it was too big to fail. But Netflix is its own streaming platform, just as is Apple TV is its own streaming platform, as is HBO or Hulu. And they fit under an umbrella of streaming platform, entertainment, but they're not the same company. And that's how we treat policing. We act like all policing is the same. And I caveat that because if a career fair works for one agency, it might. I don't know. Because there's 18,000 police departments or something like well, that. Well, a lot of them are struggling. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you found a formula that seems to work. And you have mm -hmm. some evidence to support that. What advice would you give them? Go out and recruit like you're recruiting top talent for your professional football team. I mean, wine them, dine them, answer questions. Talk about racial injustice. Talk about policing. Don't be afraid to have true conversations. Care about them care about what happens to them. And when they don't pass, don't throw them away like they're garbage because they're people. And yes, they may not end up being good for your department. They might be good for another department. They may not be good for policing, but you don't have to destroy people in order to feel better or powerful. You've seen departments do this? Oh, all the time. Really? That's policing. You know, you go, you apply, you take the test, you fail. They send you a letter or they say, you failed. You're not good enough to be here. And that makes people feel terrible. And then they say, oh, well, I guess I'll never be a police officer. No one wants me. You're talking about people that put in applications. They don't know how police agencies work. I have 11 years of dealing with the politics of police agencies. They don't know that if they apply to one, potentially they send that polygraph to another. They don't know that they can apply to this department over here that might take them over this department over here because they have different standards. They don't, they don't know. I've, I've had undergraduate <laughs> students being failed by police departments on the polygraph, not because they failed the polygraph, but because they didn't pass it and it was just undetermined. And you know, there's such so vague. You've got somebody who actually really wants to do the job and they were a fantastic candidate. It was heartbreaking for them. I would say to that person that, you know, I would be asking for feedback because that should be given and apply somewhere else. Because just because the Netflix of policing doesn't want you, doesn't mean that the HBO won't. You know, giving up because someone rejects you is not the way forward. But I also think it's on, on police departments to try providing good customer service. Police officers have opportunities to learn from private sector. During COVID, I took Disney's leadership training. Normally it's thousands of dollars and you have to go to Disney, but they offered it online. I asked my department if they would pay for it and they agreed. Good for them. That's yeah. innovative, yeah. My department is special. A, it has three lead scholars. But B, they have been relatively comfortable trying new things. And although it's hard, you know, because change is hard, they have been open to it. And I think that that's really important for agencies to have. Are you finding that the recruits nowadays post George Floyd are expecting something different from things like the academy training and some of those processes as well? Every academy is different. So this like I scream in your face and tell you you're worthless, it's my just opinion that I don't think that that's very productive. Hurting people, teaching them that everyone's their enemy and then asking them to go be community engaged seems kind of counterintuitive. but. I was at a police academy the other, yeah, as I anticipated. Let's let them get up and then I'll say what I was going to say. Yeah, I was at a police academy the other day and I couldn't believe it. All these recruits came past with completely shaven heads. All the men had their head shaved. I have no idea why they were doing that. You know, you just know that there's somebody with a military background thinks that's important, but policing isn't the military. And at that point, I'm going, considering how intrusive that is to people's physical being, I would like to see any evidence that has any effect because that's some shit you can knock on the head immediately. I would argue that if you want diversity in policing, race, gender, etc., 
if you keep trying to turn those people into a square, like we talked about earlier, you're just gonna fail. Yeah. I'm not going to fit in your box because I am not a tall, white, straight Christian man. I'm just not, I'll never be that. And that is the foundation of policing. And if you keep trying to shove minorities into those boxes, you will not get any. Right. And then you'll wonder and why And wonder you, why. Yeah. So as minority and diversity recruitment become harder? It depends on who the recruiter is and the, right. and the process. I mean, there's no, general, there's no generalizing this. It depends on how you're doing it. If you're just slapping a picture of a woman on a poster, it's not the answer. It's just very yeah, complex it, it, cultural issues. I that's mean, such obvious tokenism to everybody. Yeah, it is. And it feels really terrible being the people who are slapped on the posters. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's frustrating. Do you actually care about who I am? Or do you care about what box I check? Which is funny if you think about it, because for so much of your career, it was a struggle to fit into the box. And now they're taking advantage of the fact that you don't fit into the box. Yes. Yeah. But I, I do minority recruiting by the exact same way I do all recruiting. I go up and talk to people that seem nice and interested and I talk to classes about the things I've said, social injustice, the state of recruitment, why we're here. I spend very little time talking about money, promotions. I'll, I'll kind of spew it at the end, last four or five minutes. But most presentations for about an hour, I talk about if not us, then who? And if policing isn't here, what happens? And what happens is the private sector takes over, which is exactly what's happening. And there are many, many losers when the private sector takes over. A hundred percent. Aw, man. Come on, fellas. They seem to shake a couple of trees and now they're coming back down again. I've not... They're hungry and they're taking a break. Yeah. <laughs> they <laughs> want a sandwich. <laughs> we've, we've done like 10 seconds yeah, of work and tired. we are done. Yeah. So I, I spoke somewhere with a, a very powerful people and they laughed at me when I said that policing could be replaced. And it won't be what the reformers want, you know, with the social workers and, you know, this reimagining of policing in that aspect. It will be that the rich will be safe and the poor, as we know the history, is, you know, the, a lot of the poor in our communities are Latino or African-American or whatever it might be, yeah. are going to suffer and continue to die. And our tax dollars won't be able to pay for policing because no one will do the job. But the rich will have their security dogs and their security details and their private patrols. And they won't want to pay for public policing because they already feel that they're paying enough. Yeah. Do you feel people are still looking at it like a 30-year career? No. No. I mean, some. There's just a lot of freedom with the internet and videos and growth of industries. You know, who knows? There'll probably be 20 more industries 20 years from now. I mean, who knows, right? We keep innovating and growing. I always say the benefit has to outweigh the sacrifice. And when, when the sacrifice grossly outweighs the benefit, which it is currently, why would you do it? If I ask you why I should work for your department and you cannot give me an impassioned reason other than money, you're going to fail. Right. Because there has to be an inspirational aspect to it or you have no one. And protecting democracy is one of the things that I care about, you know. I love this country. I travel all the time outside of it, and I love it. I'm so proud of it. It's not perfect, but I, I'm very proud of what we do, and I want to protect it. And that's the way that I can serve and do that. Always a work in progress. Always a work. Everything's always a work in progress. Always a work in progress. 
One of the things that I really like that you and your chief have worked towards is to trying, and I thought this was really innovative, trying new ways of putting together different videos and seeing the impact of videos. Tell me a little bit about that. So Kyle and I got together and Charleston didn't have a, a recruiting video. And I've seen some god-awful recruiting videos. Yes. Why do they always have people abseiling out of a helicopter? I've been around policing for nearly 40 years and I've never once abseiled out of a helicopter. Because someone somewhere said, I want something cool in this video, and they put it. They had no evidence, they had nothing. I feel like I've been robbed of an experience there. <laughs> Me too, I would like to jump out of a helicopter too, with, with my anyway, gear on. Kyle McLean. So Kyle, Jeff Alpert, and I did a study. With the, the subjects were college students within Clemson and USC, and we, we took the findings and actually created an evidence-based recruitment video. So we took the information and... What did you get from the students? Oh, basically that they wanted to make social change. I mean, that was the, the big social impact. You learned what the students were really interested yeah. in, and then you made a recruitment. Yes. Well, you made a couple of videos, didn't you? We made one major one. And what was really nice is that my chief, Chief Luther Reynolds, allowed me to wait. It took, you know, over a year or more. And although he wanted it out, he understood the importance of using evidence to drive the video. Fantastic and, as a chief. Yeah. yeah. And allowed me the space to do it my way, which I really appreciated. So if I understand it correctly, what you and the, the, the guys did was you built two videos, one that was more traditional. What did that video look like? So we used tactical imagery that included SWAT, bomb, canine, the traditional. All the sexy stuff. All the sexy stuff. Uh -huh. And then we Which had... Which is what so many police recruitment videos are, right? Yes. But and then you built something else. And then we built a community engagement snippet of pictures of officers engaged in community activities, speaking to the community in, in, in various capacities. And then we also used different words with each videos to see if, the, if words with the images had impact as well. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then the target audience was university students. Yes, so that age group traditionally... Are potential candidates. Are potential candidates yeah. to be police officers. And then also, you know, there's a debate about if academia is important to policing, but our department currently is 88%, at least has a bachelor's degree. That's fantastic. So yeah, and I, and I value higher education and I had access to these universities. And so, you know, I go to those universities to recruit. So I wanted to see how we could build something impactful because a recruitment video isn't just a recruitment video. It's a tool, it's a brand, it's, it's a an idea. It's a way to idea. message to the community. Yes, and it can be used in multiple facets to be worth the money that you invest in it. They trialed these with their university students and students saw different videos. Big picture, what did they find? The, the big messaging was is, is social impact. That was what the students were interested in. They were much more drawn to the, the kind of social impact videos than the kicking indoors and jumping out of helicopters. Yes, but there's still a portion that's interested in that. Right. There's still the people that want to see SWAT things. There's still the people that, that are interested in those, in those traditional specialized units. Yeah. So you don't want to get rid of it completely. I'm not saying just go show people riding bicycles because that's not a true representation of what's expected. But they want to focus on what, when they enter policing, what they're going to do to change it or to be a part of it to do something good for others. Social impact, because that's this generation now. They want, they want to feel like their lives are being spent making a difference so that their legacy is something. Well, that also taps back into what you were saying earlier about finding people who want to do the job, not just because of the compensation. Yes, and I mean, compensation is important. Mortgage but, gotta be paid. You know, you have to be paid for the work. To transition it into a white collar profession, you have to pay for the work. To assume people who are highly educated and problem solvers and smart and capable will just do this for nothing, it's very foolish. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like getting involved with leads. It sounds like I mean, working with academics, you can find the right academics. 
has really kind of worked out well. I don't see any other way to do it. I mean, it fits my personality, it fits who I am, it fits what I'm passionate about. And I, it's the future of policing. Evidence-based policing is the future of policing. Because how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been and you don't know what's currently occurring? This people's opinions aren't going to drive policing forward. It's going to just be a repeat in the cog of a machine. You know, there has to be research, there has to be information guiding decisions in order to make positive change. Well, I feel happier with folks like you in the job, so... Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for spending some time with me. Cheers. I really appreciate it. That was episode 61 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Las Vegas in May 2023. Need transcripts? I got you. Go to reducingcrime.com slash podcast. And while you're at it, subscribe to this podcast at Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, or wherever. It's free, easy, and would make me happy. Ping me for multiple choice questions for every episode and follow me on Twitter at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe. Or not, it's not like I get paid for this. Be safe and best of luck. Mm -hmm.